On this special edition of the Radio Plasma podcast, in partnership with the Holyoke High Herald, we bring to you coverage from the April 3rd Teen Town Hall meeting. I'm Charlie Brunette, and I was there on April 3rd for the Teen Town Hall meeting, put together by Youth Rise Together, which is a youth-led activism group in the Pioneer Valley. The town hall meeting had several political guests, such as Tahira Amatuo, who is running for District 1, along with Jim McGovern and Aaron Vega, who is the own representative of Holyoke, along with a representative of Elizabeth Warren, who could not speak but took notes for her. Tahira Amatuo opened up the entire town hall meeting with a powerful opening statement. She supports all teen activism, and she herself had even participated in such when she was younger in Springfield. And she realizes what a responsibility it is for us to empower this generation and enable them for our future. Following was the description of the candidates, who also found much respect for these children who put together the town hall meeting, especially representative of Holyoke, Aaron Vega, who was brought up in politics himself and found it important for youth to be involved in politics. Along with their opening statements, they talked about the most important issues to themselves. Jim McGovern had talked about how his most important issue right now was fighting hunger, along with peace, climate change, and renewable jobs. He also said that he believed in science, despite what modern Congress said. Aaron Vega had talked about a difference from office and campaign where his focuses were different, such as food security. He talks about how Holyoke kids have trauma, trauma that was different from any other city. Foster care was another big part because he knew nothing about it before, but it was something so prominent in Holyoke. He also wanted to talk about higher education and remarked that they are in, right now, as of Holyoke Community College, a place of higher education that was proof that it could work on a city level. The biggest takeaway that most of them got from it was how best ways for youth to communicate to politics. Their most prominent statement being, show up, speak up, act up, which was repeated several times throughout the entire town hall meeting. They also encouraged you to communicate with your politicians, writing notes, internships, getting involved, voting. The questions began a little while later. The first question was very tied to the opening statements with the best ways for youth to communicate. There are people becoming enabled in politics but don't know where to start. And they asked, where do you start? Jim McGovern had stated joining organizations, always kicking it up a notch and never letting down. The next question was, what role should the Syrian war be in the United States? The next question was, do you oppose the NRA and sign the bill to end gun violence? Gun violence has been a very prevalent part of politics within the teen and youth groups. And Jim McGovern had openly opposed the NRA point blank and actually co-sponsored a bill to end gun violence through extensive background checks and the removal of bump stocks. Aaron Vega did not openly oppose the NRA, but does support those bills. In my personal opinion as a Holyoke High student, I was kind of disappointed in Aaron Vega's perhaps passive neutral response. I was hoping that he would think in such a city that he described as violent that it would be more important to him to end something that it is as big as gun violence. The next question was related to the past one, a stance on involvement of companies and what stance we should have. 
Aaron Vega had said that he doesn't oppose the company, but he opposes the product, which is to say that he would not oppose companies such as Smith & Wesson for making guns, but he opposes guns itself. It would be an open losing investment. Jim McGovern was frustrated on the federal level for the lack of care in this sense of changing the stance of involvement of companies in our government. And he called to action that we need to change control of Congress, which is something that he brought to the table several times in several different questions. The next question was climate change, which was another hot topic that night. What can we do to press climate change and the carbon tax? Jim McGovern had just blatantly stated damage control and that we need to change the makeup of politicians to progress. We need to move away from fossil fuels and invest in new, clean, renewable energy, which I have seen said many times in the past and something more of a shallow statement in my own opinion. During that same question, Aaron Vega had looked to local green energy and had talked extensively about Holyoke's plans within green energy, especially with the HG&E. Our Holyoke Dam has 68% of the city running on the energy from the waters. The takeaway from Aaron Vega's answer was, things take time. The next question was on how do we prevent police brutality, specifically for people of color. Jim McGovern had called to the table that police departments need to reflect the community. They need to be as diverse as the community, that we need to have a discussion on the systematic racism and identify where problems are. Aaron Vega had agreed with him on many levels. He wanted diversity in state police and had said we needed, especially in Holyoke, racial diversity within the police force. We need to make relationships with police officers. The next question was from an anonymous person in Holyoke, and it was, how are you trying to make communities safer? Aaron Vega had just said funding and to get community policing and also youth programs. The next question was about school safety and how are we making schools safer? Jim McGovern had told us that school safety is more than guards, metal detectors, and cameras. It is counseling for problem kids with law enforcement. And Aaron Vega had said we need to treat mental health issues. We need police officers to have support in school and schools need security and to not be outdated. As a Holyoke High School student, I see school safety as a primary concern to myself as well. I spend eight hours, five days a week in school, and I believe that I should have the right to be able to live through that day of school without being threatened with a gun or a bomb, as we previously have been. I may not agree with extensive law enforcement and increased support of law enforcement in our schools, but I do believe that we need to focus more on school safety and explore different options. One of the last questions was on LGBT safety. Massachusetts is a leader in LGBT rights. We were the first people to have gay marriage, and we have one of the most protected series of laws for LGBT people. This was stated between both politicians. Vega had said that mass led the way for our nation, but we need to remain vigilant. And Jim McGovern's takeaway was that Congress wants to take the rights away, but we the people can keep them. I thought that was almost threatening in the sense where they kept saying, we have this, but we can take it away from you. One of the last most powerful questions was, how do we fix racism in America? It was a big question, and they both spent very much time on it. Jim McGovern said, we need to acknowledge race is a big part of America, to call out racism and bigotry. 
while Aaron Vega had come back to his original point of creating social groups and mingling. He had called to the attention the diversity of Holyoke that was encouraged by the Latino community recognizing the Irish community went through the same thing and a sort of solidarity between them. The event as a whole, I believe, was a success. We got politicians to talk to youth, and we got the youth to respond to the politicians with their own ideas. I do believe, however, that in total, I could only find three to five people from Holyoke actually at the event. The rest were part of cities different than, such as Amherst, East Hampton, Northampton. So I did not see the point of it being in Holyoke if it did not cater to our questions and our beliefs in our community. I believe that we should try to continue this in our city. I think that the continued correspondence between the youth and our politicians will only make us stronger and more capable generation than those past. And I hope in the future, we can keep this dialogue open. Now here for you, we have the entire event recorded. Youth Rise Together Teen Town Hall Meeting from Holyoke Community College. I'm Charlie Brunette, and this is a special between Radio Plasma podcast and the Holyoke High Herald. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the town hall. We're super excited about this event, and we're really glad that you're all here. Um, we have one like quick announcement. We just found out today that Stan Rosenberg, unfortunately, will not be able to attend because of Passover. Um, beyond that, we're just like we think it's so important that youth are involved in political and social action. So we're super glad you're here. So this organization is called Youth Rise Together. Um, we are a youth-led activism group based here in the Pioneer Valley. We were founded just over a year ago, and we have been committed to empowering youth to resist hate and create political and social change. The idea for this event came out of a discussion about how political conversations in general are dominated by adults. Um, we really wanted to change this, so we wanted to build event, an event where teens felt that they could be heard. Um, and over the past few months, we've been dedicated to creating this event, reaching out to representatives, fundraising, and trying to get the word out to everyone. Um, please join us in thanking all of the legislators that have come out today. Okay, um, today is going to be divided roughly into three parts. First, we'll hear briefly from Tahira Amatul Wadud, who is running for the first district of Massachusetts. We will next hear from our panel of legislators, and finally, we will open it up to questions for the majority of the event. Um, there's a mic at the front of the stage for questions, and many of you have picked up note cards to write your questions down on if you feel less comfortable coming up to ask them yourself. Uh, we will be coming around shortly to gather your note cards, and we will read them throughout the event. If you did not get a chance to grab a note card, there is a table right outside the doors of the auditorium. Uh, please write down your town on the note card. And now, without further ado, please welcome Tahira Amatul Wadud. Good afternoon, everybody. Oh, come on. I see you. I know you're alive. <laughs> I just want to give a round of applause for our organizers, Youth Rise Together. Let's give it up for them. I'm so proud of them, and 
I'm very grateful for not only the vision that our youth have about how they want to shape their future and making sure that it happens, but also for all of the supportive adults that are here to make sure that they have what they need in order to continue to lead. And I was deeply honored to have been invited to give the opening sort of introduction and response um, because I realized what um, a responsibility it is for us to make sure that this generation feels confident and empowered to handle the challenges that our future are, is bringing. Um, and if you see me sneak out a little bit after this, it's because I'm heading up to Franklin County for an event with uh, Franklin County Continuing the Political Revolution, which I know is one of the co-sponsors. So um, it's a full day and my spirit will be here even uh, if my, my physical presence isn't at that point. So, um, I have a story that I have started sharing with people only recently, only within the past six months, because it was a story that came with a lot of hurt, and it happened when I was 17 years old. But it was one of those moments that you all may be having as well, where I was living life, and it was fine. I was finishing up college, or finishing up high school, getting ready to go to college, and I was living in Springfield, in the inner city of Springfield, on Central Street. And two little boys on our street, they were four and six years old, were kidnapped and brought into an abandoned building. They were beaten and left for dead. They ended up surviving. The problem, and there were many problems with that scenario, is that the building was an abandoned building. The town had no care to demolish it. The town had no care to even board it up. It was a death trap. I am the oldest of 10 brothers and sisters. At that time, I was 17, and my younger sisters were the exact same age as the two little boys, James and Ernie. They were their friends. And when we found out what had happened, of course, we were devastated. And I didn't know that it was not OK to live in a neighborhood with an abandoned building. I didn't know that our elected officials should have kept us safe, and if at nothing else, at least boarded the building up. And I had that moment that many of you may be having right now, which is that hell no moment, that how could you let us live like this moment, and where is the accountability from our elected officials moment? And I went to the hospital to visit the little boys and then came back home. The newspaper had already written stories. I got newspapers and I made flyers and I held a protest in front of the building. And the adults in my life were quite supportive, but it was a youth-led moment inspired by a tragedy against children and energized by a 17-year-old and her neighbors. And we stood in the rain with flyers in front of that building on Central Street, and we demanded that it be boarded up immediately and demolished as soon as possible. And it was. And I'm very happy about that. 
So in my adult life and in these various journeys that I've taken, when I take a moment to think about what was transformational, that hurtful moment in our city's history was transformational for me. And it happens, right? You know, as organizers, it happens where something touches your heart and you say, hell no, I don't accept this. I need to change the course of our future and only I can do it. And that's where you all are. So when I got the invitation to come and speak, I knew that I had to share that story with you because that's where you are, that's where I was, and it helped to shape me into the leader that I was fortunately able to become. I want to make sure that you feel inspired and hopeful and supported and loved and trusted. Hold your elected officials responsible. Learn the system, challenge the system. It's your right. It is 100% your future. I am so pleased with your energy today and excited for what the next couple of hours will bring. I'm here for you. If there's anything I can do, you know where to find me. You guys have a good time today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tahira. That was wonderful. Um, I'd like to next invite our panel of elected officials and invite you to please come up on stage and take a seat. All right, so um, today we have Representative Jim McGovern here. Thank you very much. We also have Representative Aaron Vega. Thank you. And Abby Weber, who is representing Senator Elizabeth Warren today. Um, a little note is that Abby um, is unable to speak on Senator Warren's behalf today um, or answer questions, but she is here to take notes um, on your concerns and will pass those directly back to the Senator. So thank you for coming and being here. Um, so we'd like to start um, by asking you to just introduce yourselves and um, tell us a little bit about the work you're involved in um, and that sort of thing. So if you'd start by just saying your name, who you are, um, your positions, um, committees you're a member of, towns you represent, um, and maybe briefly about how you got into politics. Okay. okay. Well, I'm Jim McGovern. Um, I'm your United States uh, representative in Washington. And, um, and I represent 64 cities and towns. So I, if, I, if I go over all of them, you, it'll be, we'll be here all day. But in this area, Amherst, Northampton, Hadley, Sunderland, um, Hatfield, Waitley, Deerfield, um, uh, Leverett, Greenfield, Montague, you, you get in that area. Um, and um, I've been elected, I was ele first elected in 1996. Uh, but uh, I didn't represent. I haven't represented this area since then. My original district was from Worcester to Fall River, uh, and now I'm from Worcester out to the Pioneer Valley. Uh, I first got inter interested in politics when I was your age, even younger than you. Uh, it was in 1972. I was in middle school. There was a presidential election going on in this country. Uh, Richard Nixon uh, was a Republican incumbent president, and he was being challenged by a man named George McGovern. 
who I thought had a great last name, um, <laughs> but uh, McGovern was the anti-war candidate. Uh, he was against the Vietnam War. He wanted to end it. Uh, he talked about protecting the environment. He talked about respecting human rights and civil rights. He talked about women's rights. Um, he was the first major candidate to talk about LBGTQ rights. Um, he, uh, he talked about ending hunger and ending poverty and uh, things that appealed to me um, as a young middle schooler. And, um, and he talked about a world that I wanted. Um, you know, that was the kind of world I hoped we could have. And I thought if he had become president, then um, we would get that world. And I volunteered on his local campaign in Worcester. I passed out literature and put bumper stickers on people's cars. And everywhere I went, I would talk about the importance of electing George McGovern president. And on election night in 1972, um, I uh, was thrilled that George McGovern had won Massachusetts convincingly. Um, I was a little depressed that he lost 49 other states. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but nonetheless, even you know, that, that effort, is, as hurtful as it was uh, to see Richard Nixon reelected, um, you know, I thought it was, it was worth the effort because I believe that that effort helped end the war in Vietnam. It helped put pressure on people that were in office uh, that they had to do something. Uh, and, um, and it also brought a lot of people who had never been involved in politics into the process. Uh, and I think that's important, too. And so, um, you know, um, anyway, I, I, I went to college in Washington, D.C. at American University, and I worked my way through college working in Senator McGovern's office. Uh, he went back to being a senator. And then um, a few years later, um, I just decided to run for Congress <laughs> because I didn't like the guy who was the incumbent. I thought he represented things that, you know, that didn't adequately uh, uh, represent the values of, of, of the district. and. Um, and I thought I could do a better job. I, I thought I had something to offer. And so without having run for anything else before, I put my name on the ballot. And uh, anyway, eventually lightning struck, and I got elected. Uh, and so um, anyway, that's how I got into this. And, um, I'm really, and let me begin, too, by saying thank you for doing this. I, I really, this is insp inspiring to me that, uh, you know, that you have organized this and that so many young people are here today on this beautiful Saturday afternoon. But it gives me great hope for the future. So thank you. Thank you. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to HCC. I'm Aaron Vega. I'm the state representative for the city of Holyoke, actually, the 5th Hamden District. I'm one of the lucky guys, uh, one of the lucky reps that only have one city to deal with. My district is the whole city of Holyoke, so it's not divided in any way. I'll start with kind of building out the congressman's story a little bit, just probably a little more recently. Maybe like some of you, we won't do a poll, but maybe like some of you, a year ago, a little more than a year ago after the federal election, the presidential election, I woke up the next day kind of like shocked, but thankful that I lived in Massachusetts. And you're one of the reasons why I'm thankful that we live in Massachusetts. We have great senators, we have great congressmen. We're doing things in Massachusetts that I'm proud of, uh, and the kind of families and the kind of people that I want to represent live in Massachusetts, the kind of values that we work for are here in Massachusetts. And so for me, I kind of had this life where my dad was very political uh, and very active in Holyoke, and so dinner conversation, you know, all growing up went from movies to music to politics, usually in that order somehow, movie, music, politics. And even as a young kid, I kind of had an idea about who the mayor was and what was going on, and we would go on rallies and marches, and we, we went to things in Boston and protested things, and half the time I didn't know what was going on, but it was fun and exciting. 
And like any good teenager, I decided to like do anything that was not related to what my dad was doing, right? So I ran away from politics, for sure, um, in a lot of ways, but actually ended up working in documentary films uh, for 15 years, which a lot of the stories I worked on uh, were political and kind of uh, matched my sort of belief system, whether it was films on, on on immigration, films on uh, Mexican-American civil rights, uh, the story of jazz. Uh, so a lot of these things kind of ended up kind of coming together. So that music and film and politics kind of kept on swirling around. And after living in New York for, for about four or five years, I moved back to Hoyoke. And it was interesting because Hoyoke was sort of dealing with the same issues that I've been dealing with for like 20 years, right? We had the highest teen pregnancy. Uh, we had this huge dropout rate, still this divide between Latinos and Anglos, um, all these sort of empty mill spaces. And, you know, if you're ever in the big cities, you know, there's like you'd never had this much empty space, right? There's just there's more things to fill it in. So I was like, what's going on in Hoyoke? And there was a growing sort of quote unquote progressive group uh, that was trying to make a difference and new people were getting elected to city council and so I was like, I'm gonna run for city council. Again, not really understanding the job, but again, sort of like frustrated or inspired and, and I won. And I was like, uh-oh, now what? And it was an interesting sort of transitional time because while I was on the city council, this young man who graduated from Brown University Alex Morris ran for mayor at 22 years old. And we were all kind of like, are you kidding, like 22 years old? Like you say you never ran for anything else, went for Congress, like he'd never been elected, he's 22 years old, suddenly he must be mayor? We're like, what? But his campaign showed that a young man had a real strong vision, uh, had real ideas, and really brought a lot to the table. And then he won. So we're like, holy cow, things are really changing in Hoyoke. Things are really happening. And when you start to look at the team, if you will, the city council, this new mayor, uh, different businesses, young people getting involved, the part that was missing was our relationship to the state. And our state rep, my predecessor, had been in there for 12 years, 10 years unopposed. No one ever challenged him for 10 years. And I felt he was a little, just a little out of touch. So I said, I'm going to run for a state rep. And I won. I was like, oh, Mo, now what do I get? I got to buy more ties. Right? I got to actually gotta, I gotta look the part. Um, so that was, uh, I'm in my third term now as state rep. Uh, they're two year terms. Um, it's been an amazing experience. Uh, it's great representing the city of Hoyoke. There's a lot of exciting things going on. I get asked to come to a lot of teen uh, advocacy groups like this. This is great turnout for a Saturday afternoon on Easter weekend, Passover weekend on a beautiful Saturday. So thank you to the organizers and thank you for coming out. The last thing I'll say, and then and I'll hope to get to the questions and talk more about the, the work we do, but just as an idea, I'm not sure if everyone knows it, but I'll just give the thumbnail sketch, right? So 351 cities in Massachusetts, cities and towns, there's 160 state reps, so there's 160 people like myself. We represent about 40,000 people. And then there's the Senate, and there's 40 senators, and they represent about 170,000 people. And so I'm lucky enough now that I'm the vice chair of a committee on children, families, and persons with disabilities. So we deal with everything from DCF and a lot of DMH, so Department of Children and Families, Department of Mental Health. Um, I'm on the Committee for Higher Education. I'm lucky to have a community college in my district. 
I also serve on a committee on labor and workforce. So we deal a lot with the issues around minimum wage, uh, paid time off, all those kind of issues that maybe are going to end up in the ballot. And I was lucky enough uh, to be on this term on the marijuana committee after cannabis and adult use was legalized at the ballot. The legislature looked at that and crafted the regulations around that. So I was on that committee, which was pretty interesting to be on in this time and age. So look forward to the questions and look forward to the conversation. And again, thank you to the organizers and everybody for coming out. Thank and you. And I can introduce myself. Okay. I'm not going to be answering questions, um, but I'm here in the capacity to represent Senator Elizabeth Warren. Um, I'm her staff assistant. I work in Springfield. And the senator, you know, she wishes she could be here herself, but one of the benefits of my job is that I get to come uh, when she's unable to. So I'm really excited to be here. And I have my notebooks. I'll be listening to everything that people are saying. And I want to hear the concerns of everybody here. It's great to see so many young people here. And thank you again uh, to Youth Rise Together. Thanks. Thank you. Um, so we just have a couple more questions. Um, next is um, if you would talk about um, an issue or a couple issues, I'm sure there are many that you're super passionate about and um, why, why you believe it's, it's so important. Yeah, well, I, there's a, I care about a lot of things, but, uh, but the, um, you know, uh, let me just name a couple. Um, one of the things I am very passionate about is, uh, is ending hunger in this country and around the world. You know, we live in the richest country in the history of the world, uh, and there are 42 million Americans who are food insecure or hungry. Uh, as the United States Congressman, as a, as a citizen, I'm, I'm ashamed of that fact. I, I just, I, it, it shouldn't be. Um, and, um, and so I've spent a great deal of my time trying to fight against attempts to roll back uh, programs that provide people with food and nutrition. I'm on the Agriculture Committee. I'm the ranking Democrat in the Nutrition Subcommittee. Um, I, uh, you know, I have fought to expand programs uh, to, uh, to be able to help people have access to better nutrition, um, from pregnant mothers to young people, better quality school meals to summer feeding to meals for senior citizens. Um, and it's been really difficult. I tell people that hunger is a political condition. We have the money, we have the resources, we have the food, we have everything but the political will. And so we're trying to get that political will so we could actually do something about it. Um, and, um, and I've, you know, I've seen, since being elected to office, um, more people than I can count who have come to my office uh, looking for food. Uh, and when you see young children who are hungry, it, it breaks your heart. And so, um, so a, a big chunk of what I do in Washington is geared toward that. I, I even participate, and Aaron has as well, in this uh, Monty's March, which we do. It's a 43-mile 43, uh, 43 walk, um, and, uh, and we raise money for, uh, for the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts, but we also raise awareness about the problem of hunger. There's not a city or town in America that is hunger-free. Uh, I also am uh, an advocate for, for peace. Um, I, I, we're, in, we're involved in too many wars, and uh, I don't think they enhance our national security, and I think Congress needs to take a bigger role in trying to define what we're doing in some of these places um, and bring some of these wars to an end. You know, they're, they're bankrupting us, uh, and when, I, when people say, we don't, we don't have any money to expand health care, we don't have any money to make college more affordable, we don't have any money to fix our roads or our bridges, yet we have all this money uh, that we borrow uh, to keep these endless wars going on and on and on and on. Um, and I, I think we need to find a way to bring them to end. And finally, I, I care very deeply about the environment um, and you know, have been very engaged 
on the issue of climate change. Um, and, uh, you know, I look at it this way. I, I, we, to the extent that we're successful in grappling with climate change, we not only protect the planet, uh, but we also have the opportunity to create a whole new slew of jobs uh, in the environmental technologies industry and in clean, green, uh, renewable energy. Um, and, uh, and so I, uh, it's frustrating right now with some of the people in charge. Uh, I should also tell you I do believe in science, uh, which is a radical idea in Washington, but it's something that uh, I would do. But in any event, those are just some of the ideas, uh, some of the issues that I, uh, that, uh, I wake up and think about every day. One of, the, one of the best descriptions of my job, and I'm sure the congressman can, can relate, is that I'm in a permanent liberal arts education. Right? I'm constantly learning about new things. When I campaigned, I talked about economic development, right, and Holyoke, and education a little bit. And now that I'm in office, I talk about a whole different slew of things. And because there's so many different issues. You go into this and you don't actually know, you know, you have your own convictions, your own beliefs. Uh, you probably share those with the people that support you. Uh, but you come into this and you're dealing with a whole best of issues, everything from towing rates, uh, that towing companies can charge to tow your car in your city or town, to healthcare, to environment, uh, to economic development, to education, you know, and everything in between. And energy, right? You're supposed to, now I'm supposed to know about energy. So, I would say the three things that I sort of have been focusing on, uh, I will echo the congressman again, has been food, food insecurity, food justice. Uh, I'm the lead on a bill that was called, it's called Breakfast After the Bell. It's a program where we actually get federal money for kids who eat in public schools, uh, who eat the food, there's, public, there's federal reimbursement. So Holyoke was a pilot program, and it's expanded now to the whole state, to the whole, throughout the whole state, to a bunch of different cities, mostly gateway cities. The bill would mandate that any district with 60% free or reduced lunch would buy into this program and provide breakfast after the bell. It's critical time because a lot of people think, well, we serve breakfast before class. Kids aren't showing up, right? Kids are showing up to school hungry. They're showing up to school late. You know, if they've got five extra minutes, they're going to go play basketball as opposed to going to the, into the school early and, and eat breakfast, right? So this breakfast after the bell is when kids come into class. They're all sharing a meal together. The teacher shares the meal together. And it gives the teacher like 10 minutes to kind of check in with everybody, right? It's the most basic thing, coming together and sharing food, right? Breaking bread which is poignant, I guess, on this weekend, right? Um, they, and, and it gives the teacher this opportunity. It's more social, right? It's not just come in and hit the books, let's go. How's everybody doing? It's a check-in time. We can make sure everyone's, where's everybody at? Because unfortunately, in places like Holyoke, a lot of our students not only are hungry, but they deal with a lot of trauma, trauma in their life. And so the, it gives us an opportunity. So that bill uh, has lots of support, and it's moving through um, through the Education Committee. Another area that I've become really involved in the last two terms has been around foster care. Again, nothing that I ever campaigned on, nothing that I really knew much about uh, before I became elected, but then being the vice chair of Children, Families, and Persons with Disabilities Committee, uh, I led a subcommittee that looked at foster care in our state. We met with foster care parents, foster care advocates. Uh, we met with the department. We met with caseworkers from DCF. We met with all kinds of people. Um, came up with this report and just, again, talk about hearing stories that break your heart, right? Young kids, seven, eight years old, been in five, six, seven, 10, 15 different homes. Uh, young kids, babies uh, being born, not having stability in their life. In the most critical time, 
right? We're all talking about early education and food access at an early age and access to education and childcare. And then imagine in that most formal time that you don't even have the stability of being in the same bed with your family or someone around that cares for you every night, right? I mean, it's just, just heartbreaking. So looking at the foster care systems becomes something that um, I'm really become involved in. And then I would think kind of, you know, again, as there's, there's tons of other ones, but the last one I'll say then, because it's probably concerning to most people in this room, is higher education, right? So in Massachusetts, we're lucky to have 28 state universities, community colleges, a great system, obviously UMass being the flagship, places like Holyoke Community College, Westfield State, great community colleges and state universities. But we as a state have not really kept our promise uh, when it comes back to money. We have not really kept our promise of meeting the tuition rates, of making sure that the state pays 50%, right? We're back to paying maybe 40%. We're not funding higher education in the way that we need to. And many of you are looking at college in the next few years. One of those factors that you think about is what kind of debt you're going to take on. You know, you know, maybe you're going to come from a situation where you're able to have family support and pay for most of college, which is great, but most likely even middle class and upper middle class families are taking out loans uh, and, you know, trying to piece together the, the cost for college. And so we look at a lot of programs that we'd like to instate um, where there's a sort of tuition buyout, tuition reimbursement for certain majors and certain people who come back and work in certain fields. One of them could be, you know, a lot of it's around healthcare workers, a lot of it's about uh, um, in the healthcare field, mental health field, like if people go and get those degrees, masters of social work, right? Masters of social work, which many of you maybe will get into because you're passionate about changing the world and helping your community. You're gonna go to four years of college and you're gonna get into like $100,000 worth of debt for a job that pays you $35,000 a year, right? Because you wanna do good. We'd love to have a program where those people who do that and work for the state would get a tuition reimbursement, right? That, to help ease that, that debt load. Because when young people have debt, they're not buying cars, they're not buying homes, they're not going out and going and spending money on entertainment, right? They're not, in, they're not involved in the economy, which is so critical. So that's a big one for me is, is higher education. All right, thank you so much. Um, so we have one final question, um, and that is what do you think um, is the best, best way for youth to engage with you, um, other legislators to create political change? Well, um, so I would say to, uh, to people in this audience, I think um, I would urge you to show up, uh, to speak up, uh, and to act up. Um, you know, be, don't be afraid to be troublemakers, um, as long as it's good trouble mm -hmm. uh, that you're making. Uh, and, um, you know, you have to be engaged. Um, you know, if you don't show up to events, uh, you don't show up to rallies, if you don't show up to um, town halls, um, then nobody knows what you care about. I mean, I always tell people, I'm not a, none of us are mind readers, right? I mean, I, I, we learn. We learn from our constituents. We learn from people who come to meetings and express themselves and say, well, you know, we agree with you on this or we disagree with you on this or why aren't you do, doing more about this particular issue? Get to know all your legislators. Remember one thing, uh, we all work for you. You don't work for us, we work for you. You have every right to demand a meeting with me, with your state legislators, with your city or town um, um, officials, um, and express your opinion. You're, you're all old enough to know what you believe, then fight for it. Um, it's important. Um, I will tell you that uh, the activism that we've seen recently around gun violence 
I think is, ma is, is making a difference. Mm -hmm. um, I, get, I can tell you that I got colleagues uh, in Washington, you know, who are shaking in their boots because they can't believe so many young people are showing up um, at rallies, at their offices. They're getting letters and petitions. Um, and, uh, and, and, they're, and people are demanding action. I'm not sure whether that action will come in a week or a month or several months or a year, but I think, it's, I, I think something, is good, something is going to change because I think it's also important to be persistent and to understand that, you know, sometimes change requires work um, and you've got to keep at it. Uh, and so, um, you know, so that would be my advice. I mean, and I think I'm kind of preaching to the converter because we're here because you asked us to be here. So you're already doing uh, what I'm suggesting that should be done. I would, I would echo all that. I'd, I'd add three, three quick things. I would say that um, obviously the age range is different here, but the first thing is when you become eligible to vote, vote. If your friends are turning 18 and you're 15 or 16, or you have a brother or sister that's turning 18, get them to vote. One of the smallest, one of the lowest turnout groups is young people, 18 to 22, but we saw obviously when Barack Obama's first campaign, when that group votes, things change. While you're seeing possible change on gun legislation, again, another reason why I'm happy to be in Massachusetts, we're all for people having guns. It's okay. They're just going to have some more controls. There's going to be more background checks. We have comprehensive gun laws in Massachusetts, which we think should be copied and mirrored in other states. Um, but you have to vote. You have to vote. If you can't vote yet, right, encourage those people that you know they're 18 to vote. The other thing is to get involved. There's so many issues out there, right? You've heard four or five from the congressman, four or five from me, whether it's education, food access, the environment, right? Sometimes it's overwhelming, and instead of saying it's too much and just retreating, pick one thing, right? I, this isn't just about young people, this is for everybody. Pick one thing that you're passionate about, volunteer, get involved, do something on that issue, right? And you'll probably run into political people. So if it's food access, right, volunteering at a soup kitchen, right, going out there. If it's working with animals, if it's the environment, right, joining those groups, being involved. Because it's all political. And then the last thing is, for those of you that are really into it, I think you heard the first story here, is to get involved in the campaign to know who your legislators are, who your city councils are, who your school committee is, right? Getting involved in the campaign gives a whole insight to how things work. Right, you're going to hear about different issues, right? Get internships, right? We've had an internship program that people can be in our office, in the congressman's office, senator's office. Do those internships, right? Work with a city councilor, school committee, state rep, state senator, federal level too. Um, those are ways to get involved. I know that another one of our colleagues, uh, your colleague, Congressman Richie Neal, two of his his two Western Mass uh, aides. Uh, that I deal with all the time, five years ago we're in my campaign office you know, doing data entry for him, right? Now they work for him, right? So if you think that politics is a world you want to get into, uh, volunteer in someone's office or on campaigns, that's how you meet the people that are doing the work, that's how you get to know about the issues and possibly open up opportunities for yourself as well. Thank you so much. So we're now going to open the floor to questions. So right now, if we would like to start off, one person can get up and stand. We have a microphone right um, down on the floor. You can stand and ask your representative a question. She's ready. So I think something that I've noticed a lot with the people that I'm friends with and you know, like the teenagers that I'm around in my social groups is right now there are a lot of people who maybe for the first time in their lives are starting to care about politics and activism. And you know they're having this moment where they're like, oh my god, 
I can do something. And for them, that's manifesting in a lot of passion and they care about things. And I would be, I might be wrong, but I would be shocked if there aren't some people here who are experiencing that, but they don't know where to start. And so they have this passion, they have this energy, and maybe they're going to protests and maybe they might even be, you know, calling their legislators but they're not really organized and they don't really have a plan. So we know that activism is most effective when there's that organization, there's that plan, there's that this is how we're getting things done. So I guess my question is, where do they start? I think where you start is, first of all, you figure out what you believe in. I mean, what are the issues that you care most about, all right? And, and if, you know, let's just use this example of, of, of gun violence. Uh, if you care about it, you, um, you you learn about it. You get you learn about what the what, what are the, what, what are the action items that you can do. There are organizations that you can uh, you know uh, affiliate yourself with, and then you go and you talk to the people who are making the decisions. Um, if it's on the state level, you talk to your state legislators. On the federal level, you talk to those of us uh, in in, uh, in federal office. Um, and you know, and, and if, if we're not responsive. You know, then maybe you know you take it up a notch and you say we're going to do a little demonstration in front of your office. If you're still not responsive, you make that demonstration bigger and bigger and bigger, and I guarantee you <laughs> that mm -hmm. you know that unresponsive politician will all of a sudden be very responsive. Um, and if they agree with you, you say thank you. Um, if they don't agree with you, then you know um, you you keep on fighting to try to change their mind. But you know you don't have to have this elaborate plan from beginning to end all in place before you decide to jump into the political arena or get involved. I just feel like if you feel passionately about something, you, 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 you show up to things, you, you speak up at things, you act up at things. And by the way, political activism is not just about us on the table or lobbying us. Sometimes it's about convincing your family members and your neighbors uh, and your fellow students uh, to be involved uh, in a particular uh, cause that you care about. Representative Vega, do you have anything to add? Sure, yeah, I would say, so I mean, there definitely is, just by the nature of sort of the logistics of it, right, there's obviously a lot more access after 18 if you go to college, as far as committees and, you know, usually colleges on, 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 have student government, they have usually a political, both a Republican and Democratic committee uh, caucuses or clubs, if you will, at colleges, right? There's a lot more access because you've gotten to vote now, so everyone thinks, well, now you're voting, now you're paying attention, right? But the reality is you've probably been paying attention beforehand. And so high school is this sort of interesting place to sort of culminate this. Um, and we have a friend who I know won't be able to say any questions today, but Dan, I wonder who's raising his hand behind you. Dan Kelly over here, he's organizing a lot in Chicopee and Springfield sort of high school groups to have these, you know, political groups, if you will, and be engaged in the issues. You're right, if you're, I think it's, the thing about it is that if you've got five or six friends that are feeling the same way, you can create the organization. Right? So you can check what's going on in Springfield and check, but use that model. Look what's going on in Amherst was there, you know, this, uh, I know in Holyoke too, we have the uh, Palante, the social justice group, right? So it's, it's, there's, there's things happening at the high school level. Um, that's where you start to say, well, you know, let's create a group around environment. Let's create a group around social justice. Let's create a group that's gonna be political. Um, and there's no right or wrong. You just start, you know, there's, there's, there is no roadmap. Like, go here to here to here to here, right? It's figuring it out what you're passionate about and just creating new doors and opportunities. And that's what's sort of fun about it. 
But again, if you've got a political group, a, a climate action group, then yeah, that group calls up the state rep and says, you know, you find out about a bill, or you find out about some legislation that you're passionate about, and you call up your state rep, and you know, you, I have you in for a meeting, there's five or six kids, uh, young people standing around the table, and I hear from you. It's, 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 and again, if we're not answering the phone, if we're not connecting to you, that's what you use for that next campaign who's running against that person, right? <laughs> that's, that's what you have to do. And I just say one other thing. Remember, you, you can also serve as teachers. Mm -hmm. We don't know everything, you know? Politicians hate to admit that, but we don't know everything. I mean, you know more about some things than we do. So, you know, the, the value of coming to see us um, is sometimes to teach us or to get us to start focusing on an issue that maybe we haven't focused a lot of attention on. So understand your role can be as an educator as well. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Does anyone else want to come up and ask a question? We can also start to form a line at the microphone so we have easier transitions. Um, hi, this is a question specifically for you, Congressman McGovern, um, but if you have anything mm -hmm. to add to it, I would love to hear that. Um, my name is Abigail Morris. I'm a senior at Amherst Regional High School in Amherst, Mass. Um, a few months ago at ARHS, we had the privilege of meeting a man named Mazen Alhumada. He's a Syrian refugee who suffered for months in a Syrian concentration camp. He told us of the horrific physical, sexual, and mental abuse and torture he endured. Since then, many of my peers and I have learned about what's going on in Syria and what we can do. We've learned about the HR 4681 No Assistance for Assad Act. It's currently in the House Foreign Affairs Committee, which I know you're not on. Um, so my first question is, that, is there anything you as an individual can do to support that bill or other bills that might come up or have already come up? Um, and then what role do you think the U.S. should be playing in the Syrian war and the Syrian refugee crisis and in prosecuting the Assad regime's, the Assad regime's war crimes in an international court? Oh. Sorry, that was a lot of questions. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, well, I, you know, I, I co-chair the Human Rights Commission uh, in Congress, um, so we've done many hearings on the situation in Syria. Uh, and, um, and the plight of Syrian refugees is, is heartbreaking. I mean, one of the things we can do um, is, as a country, we can, we can take some of the refugees here, uh, which we're not doing. Uh, you know, and um, you know, there are people who are in, in refugee camps on the outskirts of Syria that are living in the most squalid, horrific conditions you can imagine. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and many of them are losing hope. And I will tell you that you know, that's where extremists go to radicalize people is in areas like that where people have given up on hope. So one is we need to have a, a, a more generous policy towards Syrian refugees. Secondly, I, we, I, I, I believe in the International Criminal Court. Um, and I believe that we ought to move toward uh, you know, uh, an indictment of Assad for war crimes and crimes against humanity. He ought to be, he ought to be held to account for what he has done to his, to his people. I, don't, I certainly support providing him no assistance, um, but I want to make sure that uh, that doesn't mean that we can't provide humanitarian assistance and medical assistance and food to, to people in, um, in Syria. Um, I, you know, I also think we have some leverage with you know, countries like Russia in particular, especially with a, we have a president who can't seem to say anything bad about Putin, you know, maybe get something for it. And you know, we ought to demand that Russia which is basically propping up the Assad regime, stop it. Um, you, know, this, this, you know, we can't get into the business of putting in an alternative government. Uh, the people of Syria have to decide that. Um, that's why I, I've been, you know, I've been one of these, some people have said that we ought to go in there and do, uh, you know, do, commit a, a military action in Syria. Well, um, 
you know, that sounds like, sometimes it sounds simpler than it is. That's what the thought was in Iraq, that we're going into Iraq and, oh, get rid of Saddam Hussein and everything would be beautiful. Well, we went in there, occupied Iraq, uh, and Iraq is worse off today than it, than it ever was. Um, so, you know, some of these, some of these solutions and remedies are very, very complicated. But uh, what is happening in Syria should tug at the heart of every person um, who cares about human rights, who cares about people. And, um, uh, and, uh, and again, uh, there's a lot that we should be doing that we're not. I don't know if I hope I answered your question. Yeah. So we've also had a basket circulating throughout the audience that has a bunch of questions that people would like to ask. So at this time, we'll have the basket come up, and we can read a question. I just got this one, and it feels really pertinent to um, what's happening in our country today. Um, so will you openly oppose the NRA, and would you be willing to sponsor or co-sponsor a bill to ban assault-style weapons? Yeah. So uh, yes, I openly oppose the NRA. Uh, I don't take any NRA money. I've urged my colleagues who do to stop taking it because I think it's blood money. Um, and uh, I am a co-sponsor of a bill to ban assault weapons, uh, among other things. So um, you know, I, absolutely. I would just add that I, uh, they don't obviously they're not as strong on the state level. Uh, but I've not taken any any donations from any. Uh, Gun Action League goal here in Massachusetts or anything, anything like that. Um, we do have a ban in Massachusetts. Uh, Maura Healy, our Attorney General, got in trouble a little while ago when she took that existing law and expanded it to uh, copycat weapons. A lot of people got upset, but I was fully supportive of that. I was in her right, I think it was the right thing to do. I would just say that there's three bills. There's three bills that are going on in the House uh, in the Senate right now that we're looking at. Uh, one bill is to uh, ban it's still in conference committee, I think, we have, is to ban the bump stock that passed. Um, again, I think you know, low-hanging fruit, I would call it, that every state should probably do. Um, the second one is uh, emergency removal for ERPO, e emergency removal, I forget the acronym right now. Uh, but it's, if someone has, what is it? Extreme risk protection order, thank you. Nice. Awesome, yeah, so uh, that's activism right there. Um, nice job. So uh, I'm gonna co-sponsor that. I also want a letter to the speaker that we'd like to put it to a vote. Uh, this would allow the police to, with the court order, remove a gun from someone who's deemed you know, mentally unstable or posing a risk. What you see now a lot with people posing guns and whatnot on social media and Instagram and you know people doing threatening notes that this has to be taken seriously, and then the last one is that we would take um, we would divest uh, our retirement funds, the state retirement funds, from uh, gun manufacturing companies, and that's another one. Uh, Lori Ehrlich was the rep that proposed that, and I support that too. So it's about if we can start taking the, that money away from some of those companies uh, that make some of these weapons, that will start to hurt the bottom line. Thank nice you. Job on that. We'll have another question from the audience. So, speaking of those bills, you said you supported them, but um, also with companies, do you have a stance on Smith & Wesson's involvement in uh, creating uh, guns in Western Massachusetts? And also to Congressman McGovern, is there action that can be taken federally for gun violence that we can support as students? So, so 
you know, the company itself, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, here's the, it's, it's the interesting call of like, so I'm not, I'm not pro-gun myself. I don't own guns. I took the gun safety course to have that experience because people say, you don't know how much, what it takes to get a gun. It takes a lot. So, um, I mean, the class and the licensing and the letter from the police and the background checks in Massachusetts, it's, it's a good program. Um, you're going to hear on the one side, right, those are good jobs that people are doing. They get paid well. They get insurance. They get benefits. They raise families. It's a manufacturing company. But what they're manufacturing, right, is a weapon that often is used to kill people. So there's a catch-22 there. Um, I don't have, I have not, I've not formulated, you know, I'm not asking for the company to close. I'm asking for them to change their business. I mean, you have companies that make beer. People are against drinking, and people get killed when they're drinking, and people kill people when they're drinking, but we don't ban alcohol in that way, right? But we regulate it, right? There's ages and there's levels that you're supposed to be under if you're driving, so we regulate the way we regulate guns, at least in Massachusetts. Um, again, they're not making assault-style rifles, I don't believe. Uh, they're making guns that are legally sold in Massachusetts, is my understanding, so, and it wouldn't be, I, don't, I wouldn't see how we could play a part in closing that place down. Um, but again, I would be open to if we have investments with them as a state that we shouldn't be investing in our company. So, so on the federal level, um, you, you know, the frustrating thing is that we can't even get any kind of um, gun safety legislation to the House floor or to the Senate floor for a debate or vote. I mean, this is the power of the NRA and its money. I mean, basically all the money they put into political parties and political campaigns. Uh, the Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader won't let gun legislation come to the floor. I always remind my Republican friends who are blocking this, including the Republican leadership, that the United States Congress is supposed to be the greatest deliberative body in the world. So let's deliberate a little bit, right? Let's have a debate. And if, you know, um, and if you don't want to vote for an assault weapons ban, if you don't want to vote for universal background checks, if you don't want to vote to ban bump stocks outright, if you don't want to, you know, vote on any of the legislation, including uh, there's one bill which seems to be so obvious that I can't understand why anyone would be opposed to it, but, uh, you know, right now, if you are on an FBI terrorist watch list, you cannot fly on a commercial airline. But yet, you can legally go out and buy an assault weapon. It's, it's just crazy. So if you're too dangerous to fly, you ought to be too dangerous to buy. But we can't even get those to the floor for debate. That is why, you know, this upcoming election matters. I tell people, elections do matter. We need to change control uh, of the Congress so we can actually control the agenda and bring these bills to the floor. And then what you do is you lobby those individual members of Congress to vote the way you want them to. Uh, but right now, we can't even have the debate. I mean, we have procedural motions, we do protests, um, and so, and that's why the marches have been so important, because it's raised the pressure on Speaker Ryan and on Majority Leader McConnell. Uh, and, uh, you know, because th their members are gonna go home, and the great thing about this audience and about young people all over the country is everybody's done their homework. Uh, people are sophisticated enough to know how they're using the rules to block consideration of legislation. So, you know, during this two-week break, I, I assure you that a lot of my colleagues are listening to people like you um, and um, are being uh, told, you know, to get to their leaders and tell them to open the process up. Uh, and uh, so that's kind of where we are. Thank, Thank you. you. The last little thing I'll add, to kind of like both questions, and you, you can say, it's fine, um, is so like with the emergency risk protection order, extreme risk, extreme risk you get, 
sign, get a letter, sign a petition, right? And, you know, if I get a letter that has like 100 signatures, right? It's like you take, exactly. But the second part of it is, talking about the federal part, is this, like she gets one, exactly, this is what's so great, you get an issue you're passionate about. But on the Assad thing, right? It, it's, it, it matters. It matters if you contact your senator and your rep in your district, so if you're in Amherst, I think the one we talked about this, I was from Amherst, um, you know, so Salma Goldstein-Rose and Stan Rosenberg, maybe they write a letter to your congressman saying, we support this as well, right? So like, if we give our higher electeds a letter of support and a letter of petition saying, wow, I wish you could bring this to a floor, I wish you could vote for it, they can use that as well, right? Those paper trails matter. In Massachusetts, we're kind of, you know, lucky in that way that we already know that our, most of our federal delegation supports the things we support. But again, letting them know that you support as well and sometimes sending them a thank you card is also helpful, right? If they've done something good, if they've voted on, you know, if he gets SNAP benefits, if he gets, if he gets the federal emergency food program funded again, we should thank him, right? Let him know that we support what he's doing. So it's important to have that connection so you can talk to your state legislators to say, wow, we're, we're supporting this federal thing. I know you can't vote on it, but could you send a letter of support to our congressmen and senators? That's another way to kind of have that trail and that, that message go up the ladder. Yeah. By the way, is anybody here from Amherst Middle School? Yeah. I mean, we, I, we, they did it. They sent me a, a, a petition and a letter to, uh, um, to uh, to my my office in Washington, and uh, during the, a debate in which we tried to force the Republicans to bring up the uh, some of the uh, the gun safety legislation, I read the letter because I thought they expressed better than I could, you know, why this was so important. Um, and even those of us who are sympathetic to a lot of the issues, you know, that everybody here cares about, sometimes you know we could do a little bit more. So even if you get you have a representative or you know, and who's, um, who says, I'm with you, then you can say, okay, but what are you doing mm -hmm. beyond just telling you with me? I mean, can you, I, I need more than you to promise a vote. I need you to, to be more engaged. And you can push us that way too. We can take another question at this time. And if others want to come down, you can also line up by the stage. Uh, yes, thank you, Congressman, for reading that letter. I know a lot of the middle schoolers at Amherst really appreciated yeah. that. Um, I talked to a few of them and they really appreciated that. Um, and also thank you so much for um, on several occasions speaking on the House floor about issues related to the Syrian uh, war. I know we've been paying attention to that too. So thank you so much. Um, so climate change is a defining issue, um, especially for our generation. Um, and it also has implications for food security and war and peace issues. Um, what are things on a federal level that can be done now in the current political situation um, in terms of climate legislation? And uh, for you, Rep Vega, um, we've been um, pressuring representatives for a carbon tax. Um, and is there any more progress that you can talk about on that in Massachusetts? Thank you. Yeah. So on the federal level, um, what we're doing essentially is damage control. We have a president who, took, who withdrew from the Paris uh, Climate Accord Agreement. Uh, we have an EPA administrator um, who hasn't seen an environmental protection that he doesn't want to overturn. Um, we have people who don't believe in science. Um, and um, and we, have, we have people who don't even believe that climate change is for real. Um, so I think the, the goal, I mean, the, the, the task immediately is to make sure they don't undo um, anything that's good that we have put in place. 
you know, I'm on the Agriculture Committee. Um, I do farm tours every year. I mean, and when I go around talking to local farmers, you know, uh, they talk to me about climate change uh, because they see these they see these extreme weather patterns. Um, you know, these late uh, frosts, these these droughts, these the, the very extreme shifts and in, in, in weather patterns, and they know something's going on. I had a guy who was in his mid-80s who was farming all his life, and he was saying, I've, I've lived long enough to tell you that something is wrong here. Why don't you do something about it in Washington? Um, now, if we can change the makeup of some of our people in, uh, in Congress, we may be in a position to be able to move forward on some more uh, aggressive ways to, to deal with climate change. Um, you know, I want to just say one thing too. I, 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 I appreciate the leadership uh, that, that was shown in this area against the pipeline that was uh, being contemplated. Um, let me, uh, you know, you know, I, if people say to me, oh, well, you know, gas is better than oil, is better than coal. I mean, look, th these fossil fuels we need to move away from. And gas was supposed to be a bridge to just cleaner, greener, renewable energy. Well, that bridge has been built 100 times. Um, and if we're going to invest in an infrastructure, it, not, it ought to be an infrastructure that's not the same old, same old. We ought to be aggressively uh, investing in a new infrastructure uh, that really does mean that our future will be reliant on green, truly green, clean, renewable energy. So, um, so I, I hope we can get to the point where we actually come up with a holistic energy plan that actually will do something on climate change uh, and also, in doing so, create a whole bunch of jobs for people as well. You know, a lot of people come up to me, you know, whether at the grocery store or after an event or after a debate, and they're like, I don't know how you do what you do and, and deal with all those people and all those issues, and I, I don't know how you, how you do it. <laughs> I tell people, we always have to be, I was at an event the other day, said, how do you sleep? I said, I sleep like a baby. I get up every two hours and I scream. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, the two things, I'll, so I'll get you uh, the, the, exactly about the tax credits. Um, I look also to build on what the Congressman said is that we, the build on what he's saying is clean, green, and I like to add local. We're in Holyoke, and now I don't know how many of you know, but we've got this dam just across about two miles from here that harnesses energy from the Connecticut River from an 80 foot drop that 120 years ago or so was discovered uh, and has been bringing renewable green energy uh, to Holyoke in this area for over 100 years. So we were green in Holyoke before it was cool. 68, almost 68% of our energy in Holyoke in our mix already comes from the dam, from hydroelectric power. Another big chunk comes from solar. We have a number of solar projects uh, in Holyoke that were state supported. So the carbon tax, it's getting some leverage, but the reality part of legislation, I mean, you, you can see at the federal level, right, things take time. And um, those things that are, are big and grand and change a lot are the hardest ones to get done. So I think that the carbon tax itself, it's in the Senate version of, a, of an, an energy bill. Uh, the House version is coming out. I'm not sure where we'll be on that. Um, I support it. I, the devil's in the details, obviously, about how it actually would work. And, you know, the, but, those two bills from the Senate and the House will come together into a conference committee and they'll work out the differences. We just saw that in criminal justice. We just passed a really great criminal justice reform bill. Could there be more done? Absolutely, but it was a great step in the right direction. I would argue maybe three or four steps in the right direction on criminal justice. Hopefully we do the same thing in energy. 
What's almost equally as important here in Massachusetts is SRECs and those credits that we put forward for renewable projects here. Um, and those are almost just as important. The, they create local jobs. They create local projects. Uh, you know, we have Conklin Furniture, a, a furniture company in Holyoke, that put a, a solar panel array on their roof. Right? And so they got the state credits, they got the developer, they worked out a, a deal with HG&E, Hoyoke Gas and Electric. We're very lucky in Hoyoke also to have a muni-run gas and electric. Most of you are probably in Eversource or National Grid. We in Hoyoke and Westfield and South Hadley and Chicopee have our own utilities run locally, which is another huge asset. Um, so if we have those state credits that support research and development on energy storage, battery storage, we're doing a lot of innovative things in Hoyoke with these private companies. Um, there's a lot of things happening locally. Again, I think that's going to put Massachusetts once again on the forefront of something like clean energy. So. Thank you. Yeah. My question is, how do you think we can prevent pr police brutality specifically concerning black people and other people of color? Well, that's a good question, and um, especially in light of um, recent, uh, recent events in the news. Um, look, um, I think what we need, I think we, we, we need to make sure that our, our local police departments, um, one, reflect the community. Um, you know, uh, oftentimes, and again, I mean, I, I think we have to be careful how we generalize here, uh, but, I, but I do think there are some police departments uh, that don't reflect the community. Um, we have diverse communities, you ought to have a diverse police department. Um, you, ought to have, you, ought, you ought to have community policing uh, that, that, you know, is community in every sense of the word, where people actually um, are not just responding to what they think are crimes, but are actually in the community, listening, working, trying to figure out, uh, you know, how we can, how we can do better. Uh, that's number one. Number two, we have to have a discussion about systemic racism in this country. Um, and it's hard because people get very defensive, but you know, not talking about it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist or it goes away. I mean, you know, there are some systemic issues that that need to be addressed. Um, you know, people who um, people need to be held accountable um, when there are examples of police brutality, uh, when there are examples of overt racism. Uh, and, um, and, you know, we, one of the frustrating things is that we've seen some police departments, you know, rather than hold people accountable, basically kind of, you know, circle the wagon. Uh, what that does is it just diminishes confidence in, our, in those police departments. Um, we need to make sure our police departments, you know, are engaged in promoting sensitivity training. Um, you know, again, we have very diverse communities. We have people from all over the world. Um, who are living in our country. Uh, we have people who speak different languages. Uh, we have people who have different customs. We need to make sure that our police departments are, are responsive to that. Um, you know, I, 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 I appreciate the work that our police do, um, and, um, and I especially appreciate uh, the work that they do now uh, in an age when you could pull somebody over for a speeding ticket and be greeted with an assault weapon. Um, and so we need to we need to understand that as well. Um, but I, I, I think as a country we need to have these discussions and figure out how we do better. I mean the goal should be we got to do better. That's I mean that's let's you know let's let's identify where the problems are and let's address them and not just try to walk away from them. 
Yeah, well said. And I think that, again, I guess I would just bring it back to local. So um, the diversity on our police forces is, is critical, especially at the state level, the state police force. If anyone's been following stuff recently, there's been some state police removed uh, from their position due to comments and stuff they've said on social media, uh, very racist comments. But I say locally because I think that we need to have a relationship with our police officers, right? Um, especially in places like Hoyoke, uh, where half our population is, is, is Latino. We have programs where we work with our police department, our sheriff's department, our DA, and we work with our teens and, and create a basketball league, right? So kids are playing basketball. Get to know your police officers, right? We promote community policing. If you're in a town that doesn't have community policing, work with your police chief to talk about community policing. If they need an example, come over to Hoyoke and you can check it out. Our police in Hoyoke are great. They're doing hard work. You know, they're in rough situations, but they're able to come to places where they're welcomed into the, into the community down at Morgan School where all the families are coming together. And if kids start to see a police officer in their community as a local friend, as someone they know, someone they can talk to, that starts to break down that systemic racism and that systemic animosity, right, between the groups. Our guys do so much to kind of reach out to the communities at community events. If you're organizing a community event at your school, you know, you probably have to have the police there for you know, security and protection like we have one here today because we're in a building, right? But have them there presenting you know, information to your teens. Let them have them present information about what it takes to become a police officer, right? Have them out there with safety information, right? If you're gonna do a safety, a safety event around biking or something like that, have the police there, right? Our police force and our fire department force, they're, they're doing stuff like giving out bikes, they're giving out free books, right? We arm our police officers in Hoyoke with books. Right? We, have, we arm our police officers in Hoyoke with, with packages by this, this, um, this uh, private person in this nonprofit, these sort of homeless care kits. Right? So they run someone who's homeless, it's a care, you know, shampoo, you know, different things. You know, it's, it's making those connections. But you're right, are they going to run into someone that's you know, high on drugs and tries to poke them with a needle and they've got to take that guy down? Then they've got to do that, right? We had a, in Chicopee, you have people shooting each other from cars driving by, so they've got to deal with that. We don't want to deal with that. Right? We want them to deal with that. But I, I go back to it, make those relationships with your police officers, especially at the local level. Invite them to the events, invite them to you know, participate. Um, they're gonna show up, they wanna create those relationships. I think that's the, that's the key thing. Good. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Right now we're gonna have another question from the basket collectors. Um. All right, so this question um, is from someone in Holyoke, and it's, how are you planning on making communities safer? Oh, well, all right. <laughs> um, we're gonna look to the federal government for some money for our, <laughs> for our community policing efforts. Well, I think I kind of touched upon that a little bit. Um, we have, um, I think, a community policing unit, which is critical. It's underfunded. It's, 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 the, it's the thing, it always comes down to funding, right? So making our community safer, what does that mean? So it can mean obviously dealing with gangs and drugs and we'd love sometimes, you know, some people would love to have a police officer on every corner, right? Other people would say, no way, right? So where do you find the balance of that? Um, the community policing, what it's about is getting officers out of their car into the community. So they might be at a hotspot corner, there's one actually right near my house, outside the bodega in this apartment building, and they'll set up shop for the whole day. So they're deterring business for that 
black market, but they're meeting the kids as they're coming by. They've got you know, the coloring book, they've got the information, they've got the, fa the, the sticker badge that come around. So it's creating that safer environment because suddenly people feel safer. It's, it's tragic in Holyoke, you know, 40,000 people, but I have kids that, you know, we have big city problems in some areas. We have kids and families that won't go to the park right across the street. Right? There's a park in South Hoyoke named after my dad that you know, kids will be there for about an hour or two after school, maybe, you know, but come five, six o'clock at night, they're not at the park. Right? It's, it's the gang members are around, there's drug dealers around. But when our officers go down there in the community policing, you know, the kids, the families are out there till six, seven o'clock at night because they're safe. So neighborhood watches are important, we have those. Um, it becomes impertinent on the community, right, to make those phone calls when they see something. Um, which is also scary because you may be in a situation where there's you know, gang violence and you don't want the, the ramifications or repercussions of, doing, of, of calling somebody. Um, so that's sort of the, 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 the groundwork for it. And I also think that when you talk about safer, it's also about creating opportunities for people, uh, for recreation, but also for young people, for jobs, right? What happens when you have a lot of young people who don't have jobs, they don't have money, there's nothing to do after school, or they're on summer break, it's a lot easier to start turning to something that maybe is outside the law, right? To make money, to get reputation in your community. So we have to make sure that our young people have opportunities for, for basketball, after school programs, baseball, but to get a job to make money. Right, that's deems into public safety. And then making sure that our parks are safe, whether it's uh, infrastructure, making sure that the, the spray parks work and the benches aren't broken and the fences are locked when they need to be. So there's all those little elements. We have a lot of neighborhood associations also that work directly with our city councilors and school committee and then with the police. So again, organizing those communities I think are critical because we can't do it alone. Right? I can't do it alone, I don't do, I don't do my job alone, police officers can't do their job alone. It takes the whole community to be involved. I don't represent Holyoke, but I agree. <laughs> we can take another question from the audience at this point. Hi, um, my name is Danielle Jordan, I'm a junior at Northampton High. So I'm very passionate about school safety and security. And to, for example, to enter our school, you just have to ring a button and then they look at you through a camera and they let you in. We do have a school resource officer, however, he goes back and forth between the middle school and the high school. Um, I think he's at NHS Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and the other days he's just at the middle school. Um, for me personally, that I don't, that's not good enough for me. I don't, that's not good enough for me. And I was wondering how we are going to make our school safer, and I think personally, I would feel more comfortable if we had a school resource officer full-time in both schools. And I did bring this up with, I was talking to our officer and I brought up with the school and they said that they want that too, but they don't have the funding to do it. And I was just wondering, well, when, when is our safety a priority? Well, um, and, I, and I think we're all trying to figure out how, to, how do we make schools safer um, in the aftermath of uh, what's been going on in this country. Um, on the issue that you talked about, about uh, the funding, I mean, that, that's more on, a, on, you know, the city of Northampton is going to have to decide that they're going to put more of their budget toward uh, increased, uh, um, you know, increased officers at, at the school. Um, and, and look, I, I, I'm not quite sure what all the things that need to be put in place are. I, I can tell you this, I have two sisters who are school teachers who have definitely said they don't want to have teachers armed. Uh, they don't want, they don't agree with Trump on that at all. 
and um, but I think creating safe schools is about more than just guards and metal detectors and cameras. It's it, you know it's basically providing a a place where you know people who are troubled you know are identified or and can get help. I mean where there's interventions, where there's where there's enough counseling, where there's enough support, where there's enough communication and, and there's integration uh, between the schools and local law enforcement and, you know, and, and parents and, you know, that, um, you know, uh, you know I, I don't know all the details about the Parkland shooter, but it seemed that there were moments when, if there were better coordination, there could have been interventions. Um, but um, but, I, I, but I, I think, you know, you who are in school, uh, you, you need to communicate to us what you feel comfortable with um, and what you think is won't make a difference. Um, you know, but I, I, I hear you. I mean, I, 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 you know, I never thought that we would be having a discussion uh, that revolved around the fact that schools potentially might not be safe. Um, and here we are. But it's not just schools. It's movie theaters. It's nightclubs. It's concerts. It's even church. Um, so, um, you know, again, I think we, the, the discussion needs to get beyond just we need to have security guards uh, to create a safe environment. It, it, it's much, much bigger than that. And, and again, I, I, I think, you know, if, you know if, if we had a different leadership in Congress, we would actually be doing hearings, not just in Washington, but field hearings across the country and listening to people, uh, especially people who are in school, <laughs> and listening to teachers uh, about what makes the most sense. Mental health access and funding is critical in this, so that young people and all people have access and the stigmas are removed from that. People can address the mental health issues. I think that's critical. Uh, we dealt with some of that in the last session's criminal uh, gun reform uh, law. We put some more uh, assets and support around mental health issues um, and provided more information. In the criminal justice bill we just passed, there's uh, a little bit more detail around SROs, giving them a little more support, but also asking for a little bit more training uh, to make sure that the police officer, it's really just make sure you have a police officer who wants to be there, really. That's just not their average detail, right? They, there's some police officers that don't want to be around schools, right? So you want to make sure that the right person is the right fit. Mm -hmm. So we kind of make sure there's a good MOU with the city and the, and the school department and the police and give them the support that they need. In Northampton specifically, you, yeah, you could talk to the officer. He may say he wants to be all the time. Organize your teachers and students. Get that petition to, to Mayor Narkowitz and your city council. They're the ones who do the budget, right? So um, I agree it's much more than just a police officer and, and cameras, but if you want to have someone there five days a week, it's the letter to the city council. Okay. They do the budget. And then the last thing I would say is that what I may be looking for at uh, the state level, probably next session to see if we can do create this program. The school building authority is the organization at the state level that approves and funds school building projects. Depending on where you live, in your demographics, they pay for a percentage of the school. So if a new school's being built in Hoyoke, let's say the state ends up paying about 80%. Deals, deals with our graphics. If you're in Ludlow or Longmeadow, they probably don't pay 80%, right? It's probably 60%, right? Um, I like them to create a program, love to have it be fully funded, uh, but so many of these schools are outdated as far as security, so making sure that we have locking doors, and you know, that doors that lock, 
from the inside, right? Not from the outside and uh, making sure that there's a good security system because it is part of it, right? So again, it's much more than that, but making sure that there is a program. But again, these districts, especially here in Western Mass and places like Holyoke and even Northampton and Amherst aren't flowing in money that they can say, okay, we're gonna spend $3 million on a school to upgrade its, its you know, security system. I think the state needs to have a part in that. It'd be great if the federal government obviously had a loan program too that could reimburse states to support those kind of projects. And here's an action item. There's gonna be a ballot initiative um, mm -hmm. uh, called the fair share tax, mm -hmm. uh, which would say that millionaires pay a little bit more on taxes and that money would be dedicated toward infrastructure and toward education. Um, and so it could help alleviate some of the pressures that a lot of cities and towns have in terms of funding education. So uh, those of you who can vote, make sure you vote for the fair share tax. Uh, those of you who can't vote, tell your families too. Yeah. Thank you. I just have a quick announcement before the next person goes, or we take a question from the basket. Um, we don't have a ton more time, so just keep your questions as brief as, brief as possible. Just ask one question, and let's keep the answers okay. as brief as we can. We, will. Just, okay. we want to make sure that everybody gets a chance okay, to ask something. So now we're gonna take one more question from the audience, and then we'll move on to take a question from the basket. Okay, um, so there's obviously a lot of obstructionism in the U.S. government today, mm -hmm. and um, so I was just wondering what's wrong with the U.S. government as a system, and um, why if, so you don't have to answer all of these, but, and why has um, the obstructionism become even more prevalent recently? If you had the opportunity, what shifts would you make in the system if you would make any? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, um, I always tell people that, um, you know, the people who are in Congress and in the Senate uh, didn't just magically appear there. People elected them. Yeah. Um, and so people have a responsibility to elect people you know, who are, you know, are not gonna just go there to blow things up. Um, you know, if you, if I, if people who have run on campaign platforms of, I will never compromise with anybody, get elected. And then when you get elected, everyone's like, why won't they compromise? Because they said they wouldn't, and you voted for them. Um, and so, um, and I think in terms of the system, if in fact, and I've said this before, many times on the House floor, one of my biggest problems with the leadership currently in, in Congress is that they do not follow what we call regular order. They don't, we don't have regular hearings. We don't do markups and, and bills come to the floor that are unamendable. Mm -hmm. I, I think you know, one of the ways to get around dysfunction is you open the process up a little bit. I mean, look, I'm, I, I'm not, I don't oppose people bringing ideas that I disagree with to the House floor for debate and a vote. I'll fight against it. But you know, but I don't, I don't, I don't oppose them having the right to be able to offer what their viewpoints are. Um, but if my approach is going to be that if you have a different viewpoint, I'm going to cut you out no matter what. That adds to the tension. That adds to the dysfunction. And that's one of the problems in Washington. We need to we need to open the system up. And I think if Senator Warren were here today, or she'd be saying the same thing about the Senate procedures that. The, the leadership over there right now, it runs, the, runs a very, very tight ship. There's not a, a lot of opportunity for people to express themselves. Um, and so I don't know if we need to like revamp the way, you know, the, the system itself. I think we need voters to actually vote <laughs> and to mm -hmm. pay attention to what th these candidates are saying, to not embrace, you know, my way, the highway politics, um, and, uh, and to demand that uh, the, the federal government be run in a more open and transparent way. 
We'll now have a brief question from the basket. What? Uh, I mean, I, suppose, I, I, mean I, I think that, yeah, I think that the system actually is a, a wonderful system in that way people are elected, right? Because we are designated by our, by our population and it's designated, we all, have a, we all have a voice. But it's, I think, making sure that when candidates are out campaigning, you people have to, everyone has to show up and ask them questions and debate them and you know, get them to say what they really stay, how they really feel about things. In the House, we have a Democratic majority, right? But it's not kumbaya, there's 160 members, I think it's 123 Democrats. We more or less get along, but there's really liberal Democrats, there's more conservative Democrats, there's some Democrats that would be you know, a Republican in some other states. Um, there's 35 Republicans. 10 or 12 of them are sort of the obstructionists, you know, there should be less government, Tea Party kind of mentality. But the other 20, I mean, if you have the right issue, we work together. You know, you, you, always, you see it federally too, if it's, if it's an economic development bill, if it's, we all care about education. Often we, we have the same beliefs or the same, we want the same things, Republicans or Democrats, in the end. Often it's how we pay for it and how we get there yeah. where the disagreements happen. Yeah, and just really quickly, the other two things that would would be helpful, uh, get rid of um, extreme partisan gerrymandering mm -hmm. to create districts yes. that are so yes. wacky. Um, and then the other thing is uh, to repeal Citizens United and to actually have real campaign finance reform so that money isn't such a big factor. Yeah. That would help greatly. Yep. Thank yep. you. This question is coming from Greenfield, Mass. and. Are you doing anything to make sure our energy use becomes more sustainable? We're trying. We're trying. I mean, I, I mean, I again. I mean, I, I've tried to um, uh, uh, to repeal uh, the uh, tax subsidy that goes to oil companies. I don't see why we we're still subsidizing big oil companies and put that money toward green, clean, renewable, sustainable energy. Um, uh, you know, uh, and um, it, it's been, I haven't been successful. Uh, I don't have the votes to even bring it before the, the full Congress. Uh, but uh, we're trying, and, we're, and, and we are trying to oppose efforts that are trying to gut funding for the kind of energy that, uh, that is green and sustainable. Uh, so it's, it's damage control right now. Um, it's trying to, you know, I, I, we, we've, you know, when we had this big debate on the pipeline, one of the things that I've urged that happens here in Massachusetts, you know, is that we utilize the brain power we have here. We have some of the finest colleges and universities in the world, the experts on uh, sustainability, on clean, green energy. Let's bring them all together and actually de develop a, you know, an energy plan for Massachusetts. Um, and we could be the model for the rest of the country. I mean, we, we don't have to wait until, you know, Donald Trump leaves or gets impeached, um, uh, you know, or we, you know, we, we, ought, to be, we ought to be doing that now. Um, and so, um, so we, there's lots of ideas. Again, we're oftentimes limited by who we, we, we have to work with, who are, who are our partners. Yeah, yeah. Is this, as, as we talked about before, I think it's those, you know, subsidies at the federal level, it's a little bit different, but it's those tax credits at the state level that we could, should be shifting to more local projects to support more uh, municipal projects to have more local control of their energy and create their own energy and be able to store their energy too is key. Is key. Thank you. Mm -hmm. We'll now have another question from the floor. 
Hi, um, I'm Aviva. I'm from Amherst. Uh, my question is, what are you doing as well as what additional steps um, are to be taken to make our towns and communities safer and more welcoming places for members of the LGBTQ plus community, especially trans people, people of color, and youth who identify as part of the LGBTQ plus community? Um, so, well, again, in Massachusetts, right, we're, we're doing so much, right? So I think two things I'll point out. When you look at uh, what was established at the federal level and then adopted by states about discrimination around housing and employment, right, it always included race, gender, uh, religion, we've added LGBT right in there, right? So it's in our law. Right, so the federal government may remove it in those sort of resolutions that were put forward around, high, around colleges and stuff like that. It's in our law around non-discrimination. So we've done that. We've passed uh, a number of, of civil rights bills, if you will, around the LGBT community, including the, the public access bill last session, uh, which, again, gender neutral bathrooms, right, all this kind of stuff to have, to have access uh, to help people identify themselves in the world, uh, supporting that. It took a lot of education for, 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 for a lot of us. Um, you know, even some of my colleagues who were, you know, were, were, you know, they took the marriage equality vote a few years ago. I wasn't in the house yet, but I'm you know, glad that that happened. Um, so they, it was generational, right? I teach a class at UMass, and I talked about this last session when we, last year when we were talking about the public access bill, and they were all like, they all knew transgender people. I didn't growing up. Sure as heck, our grandparents probably didn't, or they were, but they weren't out, right? So it's, 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 it's new social norms are changing, right? It takes a lot for legislatures to up, catch up with that. So I think we're doing the right stuff in Massachusetts. Um, and I would also point out, keep your eye on the ballot, because there is a group putting forth a ballot question to remove what we just did legislatively uh, around public access. Um, there's a handful of... Um, very conservative, right-leaning religious groups that have put this forward. So again, the ballot is this place where you get to have your voice. Typically, the ballot's used to get us to do something, uh, whether it's around uh, you know, cannabis, probably. We would not have legalized adult-use marijuana in Massachusetts if the voters hadn't voted for it, right? Um, now, we actually did something, and now groups try to take it away. So this is going to be a real opportunity if that ballot question comes forward for people to get involved and oppose that question. And look, I'm, I'm proud of Massachusetts. We've kind of led the nation mm -hmm. uh, on LBGQ rights, and I really, and, and in this, we have more to do here, uh, but we need, to, we need to keep on leading, and we need to keep on bringing the rest of the country with us. The problem we have right now in Washington is we have a president and a vice president um, who are on the wrong side of, of these issues, uh, and I would say on the wrong side of history. Mm -hmm. uh, the, Trump uh, put a, a transgender ban in place for transgender individuals serving in the military. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody told him that transgender individuals are already serving in the military and actually serving with great distinction and honor and courage and commitment. You know, he had bone spurs, so he didn't go, he avoided serving in the military. Uh, but uh, these people have. Um, and even his own Secretary of Defense, General Mattis, has said, you know, that uh, please don't do this. Um, and then the president has doubled down recently and said he's going to continue to do it. Uh, we have a vice president who believes in conversion therapy and who has had a, a, a record on gay rights that is abysmal um, his entire political career. Um, and um, look, th and they are, the, these are people, um, I hate, you know, it, we have a president and a vice president right now and many members of Congress who are trying to appeal to a very small, bigoted, homophobic base to try to 
keep those people happy. Um, and it really is unconscionable. Um, and so people have to speak up on this issue. Um, and, they ha and people need to push back hard um, you know, uh, on what's happening in Washington. I know Senator Warren is and Senator Markey and you know, the, our whole delegation um, you know, have been incredibly outspoken. But uh, this is a very, very scary time because you know, just because we make progress doesn't mean that progress can't be taken away. And we get some people in the White House who want to move the clock backwards. And I would add to this, is you also have a Secretary of Education. Oh, yeah. <laughs> who, if you haven't, I sound by the way, you've seen that it's, it's not, it's, is it Catherine Clark? Is it? Yeah, Catherine Clark is, yeah. Yeah, grilled her. Grilled her, that she's basically not, you know, taking away those protections at the, at the, at the education level. So, I mean, yeah. this is the problem that, again, you have these people, again, I agree, on the wrong side of history, discriminating against our own people, and they're in charge. Thank you. Mm -hmm. We'll take another question from the basket, and if you're in the audience and want to ask more questions, you can come down to the floor and wait at the microphone. All right, this is um, a question from Northampton. How are you planning on changing the current state of racism in the US? That, that's a that's a that's a big question. That's it. Yeah, um, look. Um, as I said before, we we were talking about um, you know some of the issues of police brutality around the country. I mean, I think the, the, the thing is we 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 need we need to acknowledge that race is still a big factor uh, in this country, and that racism and bigotry and prejudice still exists. We need to acknowledge the disparities in our criminal justice system, and we need to fix them. And we were working um, for this administration in a bipartisan way um, trying to do that. Um, I mean, people like me and Senator Warren and, and, and people like Rand Paul, you know, were, were trying to figure out ways that we might actually put together a comprehensive criminal justice reform bill. And that all kind of stopped when the, this Jeff Sessions became our Attorney General, and he's doesn't you know doesn't share our view that we need to change things. Um, we need to talk about some of these issues more openly in uh, in schools, um, and uh, and we need to call out racism and bigotry wherever it exists. Um, and you know, and and quite frankly, we all, people haven't always been very good at that. Um, and um, and. We have to get beyond the defensive stage and get into the stage where, if we truly want to uh, tackle some of these issues, we have to we have to point them out, and we have to then come up with solutions. We all have to be grown up enough at this point in our history to tackle them. And um, and I and this is where I have I mean um, you know Aaron talked about how there's been generational shifts in terms of the whole LBGDQ rights issue. Um, one of the things that I gives me great um, you know, hope uh, that, we, that we can move forward on this issue of race is that I, I think there's a, there's a young, there's a generation up here that um, in many respects is free from the bigotry and the racism uh, and, you know, the backward thinking of past generations. Um, and so, uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I, my daughter went to school in a, in a, in a school that, you know, uh, where she was the minority in the school, but she has, there's no, she makes no distinctions. 
which I tell my wife, I, I feel makes me feel so good, you know, that you know that she's going to you know be active, uh, you know, in the future and trying to make this country a better place. But you all have a role as well, um, and um, you know, there's no simple answer to that question because uh, you know racism is just not in one particular area; it's it's in many places, and so we're going to have to address it wherever it exists. Yeah, it's so broad. It's such a huge question. It could be its own, its own conversation. Of course, I think I go back to. It's really it's a question of going back to you all. You know, so if you, you know, is it about creating social clubs where you interact with different communities and different ethnic backgrounds, right? Around food, right? It's always a good one, right? Let's find out about our Indian community. Let's find out about our Puerto Rican community. Let's find out about our Greek community. Let's find out about you know Afro-Cuban community. Right? Let's come together, share music, share food, right? Socializing. Education, I think, is the key to this, right? So you know, we're in places in school and people can come together and you can do those interactions. And when I say education, I mean education to understand where we're from. I worked in documentary films for a long time. I got to work with Ken Burns, and a lot of Ken's movies deal with race. Right? Whether it's, it's, it's American history and race through baseball. It's American history and race through jazz. It's American history and race through these other lenses. So he's always looking at that. And when I look at Hoyoke, uh, I'm reminded and I'm encouraged when I see this happen when, when the Latino community recognizes and realizes that the Irish community went through the same exact thing that they've gone through. Right? So 120 years ago, those canals were being built predominantly by the Irish community. They weren't allowed to live anywhere but downtown. They weren't allowed to go into half the restaurants and bars in Holyoke right, at this time. No Irish need apply. You fast forward you know, 75, 80 years, Latinos come to this community, and they're sort of not welcomed with open arms necessarily. And there was lots of dynamics going on in, in different communities and not, not understanding. Hoyt was going through a bad time financially, and things were closing, people were leaving, and white flight happened, and all this. So there's a really embedded history in Hoyoke about these communities not coming together. But now we have these opportunities where they're learning about each other's communities and learning about the relationship and the similarities. Because we might not agree upon everything uh, with your neighbor, whether they're white, brown, black, or whatever, right? But we find that we actually have more in common than different. And I think that's key. You know, doesn't mean you have to love everybody, but having respect for everybody, I think, is key. It doesn't mean that we're going to always, you know, find the moments to always come together and agree upon all the time, but we should have those places where we can have dialogue and understand how other people feel uh, and sort of see other people's views and sort of see their experience through their eyes. And I think that's what's needed, because when we do that, we find that we have a lot more in common than we have different. Are there any last questions on the floor from the audience? Um, so I'll try to keep this quick, but from everything that I've read and everything that I've heard, um, the best possible way, the most effective way historically to create peace in conflict-affected places abroad is through humanitarian aid, um, perhaps most, most notably after the First and Second World Wars. But whether it's that viewpoint or not, what from your perspective as a legislator, is the most effective way for us as citizens to influence our country's foreign policy, um, both in specific cases and in general? Well, that's a good question. I, 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 I agree with you. Um, look, I, I'm the author of a program called the McGovern Dole International Food for Education Program. It's a global school feeding program. It's feeding millions of children in some of the poorest uh, countries in the world. Uh, and, uh, but, it, but they're feeding them in school settings. So it helps, um, and what we've learned is that when you introduce a meal in school, kids get good nutrition, 
they can learn, but also in some of these countries where it hasn't, where getting girls' education hasn't been a priority, they, p parents will send their girls to school, and so you're helping to educate girls as well. Um, and education, um, you know, is key um, in the developing world because you can't compete in this global economy, economy without a well-educated workforce, so you then you're creating the basis for all this opportunity. But I, I want, I, I think that we should be known, I want us to be known around the world as the leader uh, in ending extreme poverty and hunger. And I believe to the extent that people view us in that role rather than the role of the arms exporter or the occupier or the invader or the country that will build a military base in your backyard, uh, but if we're known for you know, taking the lead on ending extreme poverty and hunger, I think you know, one is it's the right thing to do from a moral po uh, standpoint. Uh, two, um, it's, it's, it's our national security interest because, you know, I have this radical idea that uh, when people like you, and I think people appreciate when we help uh, deal with some of these uh, humanitarian crises, but when people like you, they don't want to blow you up, right? I mean, it's like, um, and, um, and, and, and again, I, 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 I look at our foreign policy and it really, I get really discouraged because it's like we make the same mistakes over and over and over and over again. Um, and uh, you know, I've never been to a place in the world where anybody's ever said to me, you know what, what I really want you to do is build a military base here, or you know, send me some more drones, or hey, build some more nuclear weapons, or send me more Black Hawk helicopters. I mean, maybe some military dictators want that, but people, I mean, they ask for things like, Help us with food. Help us with, you know, building our agricultural base. Help us, you know, with farming equipment. Help us with medical, uh, our medical needs. Um, you know, you know, help us develop a business plan so some of the local people can actually, you know, start businesses and, and earn a living. Um, and so I, um, so I think our strength is not in, um, you know, uh, I, I think I, I think we need a new definition of national security. It needs to mean more than the size of our military, the number of bombs we have, it needs to include as well, um, you know, uh, the, the, the humanitarian efforts and how have we ended hunger, have we helped end extreme poverty. Um, and so um, one, of the, one of the reasons why I'm really discouraged about this election is because um, when Hillary, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, she helped form this program called Feed the Future, uh, which helps empower uh, you know, uh, local economies in poor countries, um, and with a special emphasis on empowering women. And I think my hope was that, you know, if she had become president and she had a Congress that would work with her, we would see we would see that effort expand. Um, and I think that would, you know, it, it would it would be so incredible. Um, and instead, we now have somebody who's cutting the State Department's budget, who's cutting USAID's budget. Um, who doesn't, who his own budget actually zeroed out the McGovern Dole program. Um, food for peace he zeroed out, um, we, we put it back in, but uh, who doesn't have a clue uh, about our greatness? And um, mm -hmm. so I hope that changes. Yeah, and it's, it's, above, it's above our level, but I would also add to what, what, what the Congressman's saying is that these are complex issues, right? So race and foreign policy, as opposed to complicated issues, where I might argue that solving Climate change is actually just complicated. It's not complex. We actually know what to do. We just need to shift those subsidies. But there's things, ways we can actually fix it. When it's complex, I'd also add with foreign policy, it's our trade situation, 
right? The fact that we trade with companies and countries, sorry, we trade with countries that you know don't pay a living wage that we trade with companies that take our Apple phone, discard them into dumps, areas that are accessible to our kids, to kids right? That we, that extreme poverty. That we deal with countries that are keeping women oppressed. That we still trade with these companies. So it's not just about putting tariffs on aluminum or steel. Right. It's figuring out that who should we be trading with? And that human rights and how countries treat their citizens should matter in what kind of trade policy we have with them. And that supporting companies to go out of our country to build something, like a TV or a phone that all of us have in our apartments and in our pockets that aren't made in this country anymore, that they're shipped overseas because they can pay people dimes on the dollar that people in America would get paid, that's gotta stop. So those incentives that allowed companies in Hoyoke to leave Hoyoke 30, 40 years ago to go to Mexico or to go overseas so they could not worry about environmental regulation and dump the waste into the water. They could not worry about paying a living wage. That's the stuff we need to look at when we look at trade policy. And I think that when you have those huge disparities is when you have dictatorships. It's because they can keep that poor class you know, out of power. And so that's what we need to think about, how, where our money's going to other countries and what they're doing with that money. And just it, and just here at home, we, we need we need to stop talking about minimum wages, and we ought to have livable wages for people. If you work in this country, you ought to not live in poverty. So let's see how it So now, sadly, we're running very short on time. So, do any of you have any last, very brief words for the youth in the audience? I would just say one quick thing. Thank you again to the organizers and for being here and people who stuck out the whole time. To your friends who say, oh, I hate politics, rah, 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 say, well, you're involved, right? You're, you're already part of the process, right? You go to school, that's state law, the fact that you have to go to school, right? You take this MCAS test, that's state law, right? You go buy things at the store, you go buy a phone, you go buy things other than clothes and food, you're paying taxes, you're part of the process. You should vote, keep your voice strong, continue being part of the process, don't ignore the fact that you already are part of the process. You wanna say Thank you again, and uh, I was really, I have everyone's questions written down, so I'll be passing those along to the rest of my team and the senator, but it was awesome to hear everyone, and again, a great turnout. It's awesome to see so many young people, and keep it up. And I would just say, in conclusion, that you have power. I mean, you have power. Um, and uh, don't take it for granted. Use it. Uh, and, um, I mean, you can literally change the world. I mean, you can change your communities, absolutely, but you can actually, you can change the world and the, you know, you know, as I said before, you know, people need to show up, speak up, and act up. Um, and you need to be persistent. I mean, you can't, some of these problems are not gonna be solved in a week, or a month, or a year. You may be through college by the time we fix some of the issues that were talked about here today, or maybe even later in your life, but you just can't give up. You gotta keep on going and going and going. There's this great, uh, I, many years ago, I met this great journalist, his name was I.F. Stone. You should Google him sometimes, he's a really interesting guy who had reported um, uh, on the, uh, the terrible excesses during the McCarthy witch hunt hearings in the 1950s and the excesses in the CIA and about the Vietnam War. And I, I had dinner with him, he was in, well into his 80s. I remember when Ronald Reagan was president and I was in college and I was just kind of discouraged. I was like, ah, oh, things are never gonna, straighten up and he kind of went through our history saying that you know uh, you know talking about the things he covered so you know did i ever 
when I was covering Joseph McCarthy and he was red baiting everybody, did I ever think that he would be exposed for the fool that he ended up being? You know, that we would actually expose him for being, you know, uh, you know, uh, off his rocker, and there'd be, you know, and, and the entire country would know it. He said, "Yeah, no." He said, "It happened." Or would I? Did I ever think that we would expose the excesses of the CIA or how the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover was so um, uh, terribly run? He said, "You know, all these different things happen." And he said, "So I have this philosophy, which I'm going to pass on to you, uh, and I'll pass it on to you." He said, "You remember this? You know, if you urinate on a stone long enough." you'll make an indentation. And I'll never forget it. I mean, this 89-year-old man told me that, and I thought it was kind of crazy, but you know what? There's actually some wisdom in those words. Um, you just can't give up and use your power. So thank you. Thank you. Sadly, we have to wrap things up for today. But if you didn't get a chance to ask your question, you can always email your questions or concerns to your legislators. We are going to be posting their contact info on the Youth Rise Together Facebook, so you can check that out. And the conversation is never over. Keep organizing. Keep making change. If you want to find out more about Youth Rise Together, check out our website, youthrisetogether.com, or visit us on Instagram or Facebook. Please help me give a hand to our legislators who have come out to engage in this conversation. Abby Weber from Senator Warren's office, State Representative of Aaron Vega, and U.S. Representative Jim McGovern. And thank you again for coming. Have a good rest of your day. This has been the Teen Town Hall meeting at Holyoke Community College put together by YouthRiseTogether.org, a youth-led activism group in Pioneer Valley, along with Tajira Amatul, Jim McGovern, Aaron Vega, and Abby Weber, a representative of Elizabeth Warren. This has been a Radioplasma podcast event, partnership with the Holyoke High Herald. I'm Charlie Brunette, and thank you for listening.